You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. About six years ago, right when I was starting this podcast, I met a man named Ed Howard at an event in West Oakland. He'd grown up there back in the World War II era. And all these years later, Ed was collecting stories to preserve the memories of this generation. Between 1940 and 1950, the black population of Oakland nearly quintupled from less than 10,000 to nearly 50,000 in a single decade. Ed and the other kids he grew up with, they'd go on to do much more than simply change the demographics of Oakland. So I got his contact info back when we first met, but we never reconnected. Then, a few years later, in some of the local history Facebook groups that I follow, I started noticing Ed's posts popping up occasionally. Mostly autobiographical stuff. Memories of hanging out along 7th Street back when it was still a bustling corridor of blues clubs and thriving black businesses. Or he'd post links to videos of McClyman's reunion cookouts at Defemory. I'm obsessed with local history, so this was all really fascinating for me, but I wasn't exactly sure what the, what the story would be for an East Bay Yesterday episode. And there was one other thing. Ed called his project the West Oakland Stories Positive Feeling Movement, which, I don't know, just came across as old-fashioned. I mean... The idea of focusing on positivity, when there are so many obvious problems to be called out, it just didn't seem that urgent. But I was wrong, and here's why. To put it as simply as possible, the world does not feel like a good place right now. We're in a never-ending pandemic, there's war, Everything is more expensive. Everybody just feels angrier. There are horrific mass shootings seemingly every couple days now. And fire season is like year round. Here in Oakland, talk to someone who works at the corner store or a bar or even a teacher. I have. And the unanimous verdict is that things keep getting worse. People don't even want to leave their homes. And I get it. Just a few weeks ago popular restaurant owner was gunned down in front of his son just a few blocks from where I live. I pass by the makeshift memorial all the time and it's heartbreaking. It just never ends. Okay, so what am I getting at? The point is that we, we're all doing what I'm doing right now. We're complaining about how bad everything sucks on social media at city council meetings, when we hang out with our friends. But all this complaining, it's not really changing anything. And yeah, it's important to call out injustice, but simply identifying the problems doesn't translate into action. Which, uh, which brings me back to Ed Howard and his positive feeling movement. Look, Ed's no chump. He knows when things are messed up. But at every point in his life, when he's come across adversity, whether it's racist coworkers or more institutional problems like 
negative portrayals of black folks in the media, he's channeled his reaction into something positive, like getting a better job or making his own media. And none of that was easy. But Ed, he's a builder. And I think we need to hear from people like that right now. Because we already know that things are bad. The question is, how are we going to change them? In today's episode, you'll hear about how Ed Howard went from being an Oakland Tribune delivery boy to breaking the glass ceiling at a major company and bringing a lot of other black folks along with him. You'll hear about how he launched one of the first black TV talk shows, how he ran a legendary nightclub, how he invented a comb designed for African-American hair, and much, much more. This guy has one of the most fascinating resumes I've ever seen, and it's a real testament to the fact that he practices what he preaches. You are listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. So can we start by having you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about how your family ended up in Oakland, California? Uh, my name is Ed Howard. My family came to Oakland in 1942. I was five years old. Uh, we lived in West Oakland. Uh, I was born in uh, Waterproof, Louisiana. Uh, 1937. I always say the best thing ever happened to me is when my parents brought me to Oakland, California. My mother always said that she had to get us out of the South. There was no place to bring up black boys. She always said that to us. What brought your family to Oakland specifically? Was there jobs here that they were trying to get or something like that? My father, this is a story from my father. My father told me the reason why he came to Oakland was that he was, uh, I think when I was about two or three, we had moved from Waterproof to Sweetsport, Louisiana. And he was a chauffeur for a white family. And he told me that uh, the uh, wife wanted him to, you know, mess around with her. And he did not want to do that. And she indicated to him that if he did not, she would say something like rape or something. And he said he knew he had to get out of there. He had heard about... uh, things about California, Mm -hmm. which at the time they called it something like the Golden State or something. It was was a land of plenty. At any rate, uh, long story short, that's how he migrated. He came out in 41. And then my mother and my brother, we came in 42 to California. But that's why, how we got to California. Well, before we go any further, I just want to pause and to say how chilling that story is because and you know anyone who studied american history knows that so many of those lynchings that happened in the south of black men were based on these accusations by women who claimed that black men were trying to you know assault them rape them etc but as has come out 
in more recent years, we all know a lot of those stories were fabricated. And thank goodness your dad didn't end up as one of those people, you know, that he was smart enough to get out of there because that's just horrifying to imagine what would have happened otherwise. Right, 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 right. That's how we got to California. What was your childhood like growing up in West Oakland? And this was during the era of when people called it Harlem of the West, right? It was really jumping on like 7th Street and so many uh, black folks were moving here in the 40s uh, to work in the shipyards and things like that. So it sounds like it was really uh, a thriving place. Well, you're right. Uh, My mother and father worked at the shipyard. But it was like we were in the projects, Bayview Village, and my father and mother uh, worked at the shipyard. I remember they were on night shift because my older brother would always, the rule was night, by nightfall, you got to be in the house. But I just remember the the kids would be out in the projects around about whatever, 6, 7 o'clock before nighttime. We'd roast uh, weenies in a barrel with a fire, potatoes. It was just a beautiful time for me. I remember doing things like I made kites. I made cap pistols with a rubber band. We had a little, we go to the store, get big boxes, play like we making houses out of it. And uh, stop by the station, hang around there as the train's coming in. As I got older, Ramonde Park was right there. When you go, go into school, you go through Ramonde Park every day. That's where Frank Rousen, Veda Pinson, Kurt Flood, Everybody played down there. And everyone else was probably from the South, too. Everybody was just coming up there. The whole school was that way. It was like the blacks were pouring in that area. And we all coming in about this within one, two, three years of each other. In 7th Street, well, my uh, school was on on, uh, 8th Street, so 7th Street was on a block away. We'd have class walk the class would walk over on on uh seventh street to McFarland's, which was a ice cream store and all of that you go by the lincoln theater slim jenkins i'm talking about i'm six seven years old yeah so that image of of uh, the neighborhood being bad which i've always heard about west Oakland was bad i cannot i don't know the time when i didn't hear People say West Oakland was bad. It was never bad to me. I loved mm. West Oakland. Yeah. And all my friends loved West I didn't know anyone. As I got to be around 6th grade, 7th grade, the shipyard and the wartime, it was like we had got rich. Mm. You know, people were making money. Mm-hmm. There was the Army base, the Navy base, the shipyards. Everyone had a job. Everyone had a job. So I would say between 42 and 45, 46, everybody was doing good. You always, oh, someone got a phone, first phone. Somebody got a a record player. It was always a first because no one had nothing when we got there. Yeah. But you would get the phone or the record player, uh, TV later on. First TV was about 53. Two fifty-three. So by the time I got to be about 12 or 13, 
Well, let's back up. And uh, when I was about 10 or 11, I had a Tribune paper route. That kind of got me out. That's the first development. My mother got, she said she had the guy that was the paper route manager. She had worked with him in the shipyard. It's a white guy. And she got me and my brother a paper route with the Tribune. So when I got the paper route, you had to be responsible. You had to go every day and get your papers. You had to fold them up and then walk home and deliver them. You had to collect the money. You had to collect your own money. And you had to get new customers. Mm -hmm. I remember getting to be first class. That meant you had got enough new customers to get to this level. Then it have a big uh, thing downtown. The first time I went down to the city hall, they had a thing for the Tribune guys who made this level. Uh, and I remember being like, that was the first time I was around other than blacks. Wow. So you've been living in Oakland for years, and that was the first time you went downtown, even though down, it was just you know a mile I mean, or we so. We went downtown to right. the movie okay. or to the store with your parents. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was like, I never thought of it in terms of black and white. I was just It a was kid. segregated though, right? I mean, they it was sort of, um, or I mean, what do you think? Do you think that the white sort of people downtown were kind of trying to keep black folks out? Or how how was it in terms of being welcoming? I never fe- felt racial. Mm. I didn't think black, white mm-hmm. as a kid. When was it the first time I actually racially thought, and I don't even know where it came from. I remember when I was 18, I got my first car. I got my first job and my first car, and we had pipes. I was a lowrider. I was one of the first black lowriders in Oakland, California, and uh, had loud pipes. I loved my pipes, but it was against the law. I got three tickets. It sent me to traffic school. And when I got in traffic school, probably about 40, 50 people in the, in the classroom. And I looked around, and it was like about 80% blacks. And I asked the teacher, which was a policeman teacher. I said, uh, my question was, are the blacks the worst drivers in Oakland? I asked that question to him. And he looked puzzled. He did not know how to answer me. He kind of just looked at me puzzly and started talking about something else. Well, that was the first time, I don't know why that popped in my head. I just looked around and I said, I know Oakland has got more whites than blacks. Why is it this many black people in here with tickets like this? I never got an answer. Tell me about getting into engineering, and I'm also curious what it was like for you because I know from looking at your stories that you were one of the only black engineers at the time. Right. So, I mean, that must have been hard starting out a new career at the same time of dealing with kind of breaking that racial barrier as well. Well, after I graduated from Laney, uh, which was 1959, I was always very uh, ambitious in the sense of uh, I don't give up. That was just my nature, so to speak. I don't give up. And I got out of school, and I went from Oakland to San Jose 
and from Oakland to Sacramento applying for engineering jobs. I went everywhere. They wouldn't hire me. And uh, I went back to the unemployment office. They sent me out on telegraph to Lawrence Orthopedic and Design Company. They made false arms, legs, and stuff like that. And they had, uh, I'll never forget, they designed overrings, they called. These are the the valves that control the movement of uh, orthopedic mechanical devices. I got in there. I only was there for about three months. And again, the racial thing popped up. What happened? I had to... uh, Designed the drawings for the overrings for them to, uh, he had a machine shop. We would design overrings and test the parts and to make for the people. So I had to also work on lathes and drill presses and all that. So I, I was very good for my training. Started working and this was like, I must have got hired around in August or so. And this was two weeks before Christmas. Never forgot it. Lawrence, or the, Lawrence, the owner, called me in and said he gonna lay me off. He was very straight with me. He said, "You good? I like what you're doing." He said, "But the white guys, I was the only black in the place. It was about twelve employees." He said, "They don't want you here." He told me that straight up. He said, "You good?" And he gave me compliments, but he was letting me off. And I lost the job two weeks before Christmas. And I just because just, the I, white employees didn't want to have a black coworker. They didn't right, want to work right, with right. them. But anyway, when I uh when I got laid off there, I heard about Lockheed out in Sunnyvale. Yeah. Well hold on, before we talk about Lockheed, I just wanna pause for a second because uh that must have been pretty devastating to feel like you got this job finally after getting Denied at all these other places that probably didn't hire you because you're black. You finally get into a spot, and then that happened? Like, you still remember it, so it must have affected you. I mean, do you remember how you felt at the time? Yeah, I was always this way. Tragedy, stuff like that motivates me. I just got out with more intensity to do get something. That's why I've never felt like, uh, I mean, it was a disappointment, of course. I mean, I didn't have a job. But uh, I got out and I went to Lockheed, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. This is the real point. When I got into Lockheed, working on that, I'm a kind of guy, I, I read everything, all the signs and everything there, and I found out that once you got in, there were other jobs that they that you could apply for before they put it out on the street. And they had engineering jobs. I saw that and I applied. And I got I was only on that router about three months after my probation. I got into engineer that's how I got into aerospace engineering, high tech at this highest level. Cause we were we were uh uh we were designing Things on the Polaris missile that was in the in submarines. Wow, that's what we were at the highest level. 
So those were submarine missiles that you were making. We were making. Wow. I would design. I was in the firing unit department. That's when the when the, when the missiles go up and they have uh, the ejections parts. That firing unit part was the one that do that. And this is during the Cold War still, right? This is 1959. Wow. Were you worried that those missiles might ever have to be <laughs> used? Because th- that's, that's pretty bad news if they're Man, firing I, those, I, right? I, I ain't never even thought about it. It was a job. <laughs> <laughs> it was a missile, but I never wow. envisioned it blowing up somebody or... Because I just remember that was like the era when they were like making little school kids hide under the desks in case there's like a nuclear war and all that stuff, right? Right, so, right, right. You yeah. read about that, but I'm talking about the actual living it. I just went to my job. I did my job. Wow. I did the des- I was in the design department. And uh, very proud. I was very proud of being in that because, oh, let me give you another side piece. Just to give you the what you feel. Mm-hmm. When I got engineering and, and Lockheed at the time was like a big campus. Thousands of people. It was 14,000 people working out there. And it probably put a hundred black people out of the 14,000. Wow. Oh, was that in Sunnyvale? Sunnyvale. Or? Okay. Mm-hmm. Sunnyvale. I remember going to lunch my first day in engineering. Now, I, you know, I got the suit on and the tie and all that white collar work which at the time was rare for a black person to get a white-collar job. Everybody had manual jobs. I remember having lunch, and I sit on this bench, and two white girls, young ladies, came and sit on the same bench. And I remember feeling pressure. It was a blob, pretty girl. She just sit down there, and I was over here. But man, that was the most pressure I ever had in my life, psychologically. Just because she was white. She didn't say nothing or do nothing, but I just felt like uh, something right for me to be, or for her to be there, for me to be there. You understand what I'm trying to say? Well, especially considering the history of your family, where you know they were coming from a place where a black man sitting next to a blonde lady could get you killed. Exactly. That's the feeling you had. I remember almost like sweating. Although I didn't move and I didn't leave or nothing, but I felt, I'm just telling you what I yeah, felt. Yeah. It was like, oh man, I'm so glad when the lunch starts. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the environment wow. I was in. Wow. Uh, was it difficult for you to relate to your coworkers because like you said you grew up in the in the projects in West Oakland and I'm guessing a lot of these people at Lockheed this high-end aeronautics firm are probably you know from wealthy white families so what was it like to relate to these people that you'd never been in contact with before good question I always felt I was superior mm. I always felt I was superior and I remember a white guy was working side by side with me on a drawing board. And he was, his education level, I knew was much higher than mine. Because I was always a guy who just kind of winged it all the time through school, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I could do it and wing it. But when I got next to him, I could see his educational level, especially in math, was much higher than me. But practically, Putting the, the the math 
and actually the drawing board tools and all that together, I was better than him. I could concentrate. And I remember him, you know, you working side by side, sometimes you're working on the same type design, so you're competitive. You know, you see how fast you can go out there, could you do it quicker than him? I could always beat him. So I was always like that. So I never had no problem on no job. I always excelled. On every job I got, I, I excelled. I would move up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into your career at Kaiser, one thing I'm wondering about is um, you mentioned that during this era, it was very rare for black men to get white-collar jobs because right. of all the discrimination that was around back then. What do you think made you different? Well, what I think what made me different was... Uh, I have to give you my background in terms of what I was doing outside of working and stuff like that. We're talking about now, 1960s going up. Civil rights was 50s back. 60s is the black movement coming in, okay? Okay, I'm very much active in the community because I've always been active. I mean, as a teenager, I was going down to Defermery Park. I'm, I'm, I'm involved in in uh, the programs at, at Defermery, mm-hmm. all right? Because my older brother was before me, super involved. Yeah. Are you talking about like sports programs? or No, what no, of... I'm talking about social oh, okay. and community stuff. It's like organizing. Organizing. Yeah. You At Defermery, they got all your directors are black, all your leadership is black, older people, college people type I'm around those kind of people. I'm the president of the Inner Center Council because my brother had been before me. First time I go to the Silomar uh, in San Jose where all the recreational city leadership teenagers meet once a year. We the only black infirmary in West is the only black group in the whole state there. My brother is the president of it. My brother's best friend is the is the uh, vice president. All the they all leadership. I'm one of the uh, representatives from Defermery too, so I get that experience with all these white groups. We go to discussion groups. I feel like I speak up. I say anything. I ain't never been afraid to speak up around blacks. I mean whites or anyone because of that kind of training mm. coming from Defermery Park. Mm-hmm. So that translated into just uh, the workforce. So then you get to Kaiser uh, in the early 60s. What was that like? What were you doing there? I was a mechanical designer. And again, like I'm telling you, when I get there, I'm already joined up with the African-American Association, 1960 or 61, I think it was. When uh, I started going with those guys, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Attorney Donald Wharton. You familiar with him? Okay. Hey everybody, Liam here. Just wanted to jump in to say that I actually didn't know that Ed had been a part of the African American Association before we did this interview. But if you want to know more about this group, 
I did an entire story about them last year. It's uh, episode number 74. This was an incredibly influential organization that really laid the groundwork for the black liberation struggles of the 1960s. Their members included folks who went on to become trailblazing judges, politicians, writers, and even the founders of the Black Panther Party. Anyway, very little has been written about the African American Association, considering its impact, which is why I didn't know about Ed's involvement, but it totally makes sense that he was connected with them, as you'll hear from the rest of this story. So when I got in at the very beginning, I'm from the streets. I know everybody, everybody knew me. I always felt like that was one of my strong points. I could deal with the intellectual and I could deal with the street guys. And when I got in, Don told me, he said, everybody knew you. That's when it made it kind of cool for the other people to start looking at it. Huey Newton told me that. He said, he said, I didn't like Don Warden and none of that stuff. He said, but when I saw you was in it, he said, I, it made me listen to it and think about it. And he said, it changed me. Because Huey, I'm talking about he was just getting out of high school. I'm about three, four years older than Huey. His brother, uh, Melvin, was at junior college with me at Merritt. So I know all about him. And Huey is street side. His brother's like my brother, he's more intellectual. So he didn't know me just from being around. I'm a, I'm a guy who's known in the streets, know all everybody and that kind of thing. So we kick it, you know, asking me about things. So Don comes and starts the afro American Association. I get with him. And why I loved the association was Don was a brilliant man. I just learned from him. I get to listen to him talk. I learned how to study, how to read, uh, logic. All those things, I didn't have a framework for it before that point. I never got that in school. And he felt like history was really important, too. Well, that was the main thing. That was the first time it was like, hey, who are you? Black history. Yeah, I yeah. never, that was never taught, that was never brought up. I had no understanding. And the first time I heard... Black man? I'm in the era of color the Negro. That's all I know until I get an association. And we start breaking down Africa and ancient Egypt. As again, like you said, I thought Egypt was in Europe. That's the way the books showed it almost, you know. Yeah. I didn't know nothing about Africa or any lineage from me, man, do you understand how good that made me feel? And I'm saying that's what brought me over into engineering and everything, but the attitude I had, because I'm just coming into, damn, I'm somebody. I always felt I was somebody, just intrinsically, I always felt I was somebody, mm -hmm. but I didn't have no, nothing to, I can now tell you why I'm somebody. I know my history. I know I came from somebody, which I had never heard about uh, uh, Timbuktu. I had heard the word uh, in uh, in black homes. Oh boy, you get out of here! I'm gonna knock you back to Timbuktu. I had no idea what Timbuktu, University of Timbuktu, and all the 
scholars and all. I didn't know nothing about that at the time. Yeah. So I'm trying to give you the feel of how this makes a black person feel, man, that's been in a society that kept that away from you, didn't let you know nothing about yourself. You just existed on whatever someone give you, which is the opposite of what you are. So that made me feel so good. Yeah. And that's what made it Ed Howard. I know that to this day. We were the one made them conscious. We were the one made Oakland. Afro-American Association made Oakland black conscious as a city. That's why it's got the reputation it got now. That's why you had the Black Panthers. Because, man, we went on the street corner, we had the radio show, and later on I had the TV show too, Black uh, Black Dignity. I'm the one who produced it. That came through Kaiser Yeah, and well, what I was doing then. I want to get to the TV show in a little bit, but I want to start with earlier, a little earlier in your career in Kaiser by asking about something that does connect to the association, which is that I know one of Don Warden's uh, you know, ideologies was how economic empowerment would be, you know, a salvation for the black community. So how did you carry that belief system into your work at Kaiser, being one of the only white collar black workers there, one of the only black engineers working for Kaiser at the time? What were you trying to do to connect your professional life with this political belief system that you were deeply uh, involved with? Okay. I got to Kaiser. I was very black conscious. I was very black conscious. So I I would do things like I go to lunch with the supervisor, other guys, that would be a, a black Muslim guy with the newspaper. I would consciously, as we were walking by, stop and buy a paper on purpose. Take the paper back, lay it on my board, <laughs> and no people would come by now. It was like Man, you must be crazy to bring a black Muslim <laughs> into this environment, you know what I mean? Yeah. I did that on purpose. No one ever said nothing to me. Not a thing. But now my supervisor, they noticed it, but they didn't say nothing. Larry was my supervisor. He would ask me, he was still living in West Dublin, and he first was telling me things like, well, they had... All the whites are moving out of Oakland, but I'm not going to move out of Oakland. He was, that was his attitude talking to me, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. So he would, you know, he would just, you know, why are blacks this why He would just talk to me, and I was talking to him, and I was telling him I was in the association, what we were doing in the community and stuff like that. And uh, that morphed into, I mean, I didn't know it, he was and talking to other whites. You know, they were telling them about me. I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. It came down to uh, them asking me to come out to a meeting in Walnut Creek with the executives, my supervisor, or his head engineer, those two, asked me to come out to Walnut Creek at a country club, which I don't even know where it is now. I went out to the uh, country club all the big executives was there. They never said a word to me. I said, but with my supervisor, they never said a word to me. 
And I never understood what I got out of it was they just wanted to look at me. Who They must have told them about me. And, you know, the higher-ups, they had never seen me. They wanted to come out and say, who is this guy? About whatever time, a week, two, I don't know what it was, they come and, and ask me about uh, what can we do about black people in Oakland. Out of that, I just remember telling them that things like, well, I could teach engineering drawing. I mean, I, I know all of that. I could do that. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, you could do that? I said, I ain't never taught, but I, could, I know I could do something like that. They just listened to me. They got back to me a few, whatever time later, said, well, we want you to teach a class in that. And we want to set you up for that. And they said, you want to do that? I said, well, I'm going to talk to my wife about it, and I'll see. And uh, I went back and said, yeah, I, I could do that. And they wanted you to teach young black men? All black. Mm-hmm. I remember as I got into it, the guy who was working with me, I didn't have a boss except for the vice president. They gave me the title assistant to the vice president of Kaiser Engineer. That was my title. But they had a white guy working with me, kind of overseeing, you know. Mm-hmm. He wasn't my boss. And uh, he came to me and said, Ed, can we, uh, I got a Mexican guy, can we put him in? <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> it was one Mexican guy and everybody was black. Yeah. I hired every one of them. Yeah. So uh, now the way they would put that is maybe like you were in charge of diversifying the workforce, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, it morphs from that. After I started laying it out, I guess they saw I was doing what I was doing. They then asked me to be on the, the uh, Kaiser Industry Advisory Board. Mm. What that meant was that I met over in the top echelon at Kaiser and all the, that was Kaiser Gibson, Kaiser Engineers, Kaiser Hospital, Kaiser uh, uh, Aerospace. It was about six or seven, eight, nine different companies. And all the representatives would meet, and I would meet with them. And they would discuss about all the companies together, and, you know, get directions and stuff. I'm advising them about the black area, because nobody know black. I'm black, I know black, and I got that, that I know. Yeah. You can't tell me about this, I know to tell you about it, you know. Yeah. So I'm on the advisory board. And uh, that morphed into the uh, Kaiser summer hiring program, mm. where they all these different entities of Kaiser then start hiring black, white collar, secretaries, copy machine, all all this, all that kind of stuff. I was over all of that, overseeing them. But that morphed into the whole city of Oakland almost uh, starting to hire white collar workers. Since Kaiser's like the biggest company in Oakland, all the other companies in Oakland, start hiring white-collar workers. Yeah, who are black. For yeah. Black, yeah. yeah. So I know, I know I started all of that. Well, I, I, that's so important, and I, that's why I want to pause for a second and give a little context to what's happening with you and with Kaiser at the time. 
And it relates to West Oakland, um, which, of course, was this was during the uh, quote unquote redevelopment era. Right. When the powers that be, you know, white politicians, white business leaders are kind of tearing West Oakland apart. They're uh, knocking down houses, block, I mean, hundreds of houses, you know, putting in the freeways. And one of the ways they're getting away with this is by saying that this is a, a blighted community, this is a ghetto, things are bad out there, we're going to make it better for these people, and people were upset, right? And so one of the ways to uh, kind of try to, I guess, improve relations is by saying... Uh, we're doing all this employment stuff at the same time. So you were kind of in the middle of all this. Right. What was it like living through seeing your your home, your community destroyed at the same time that you're trying to make things better on the other end of this equation? Well, at, the, at that time, it wasn't looked at like that. The name of it was redevelopment. We thought it was to do something better. That was the that was the image of it. We was tearing it down, but it was because it's gonna get better. Right. Yeah, they they were making a lot of promises. Yeah, right, right. The uh, the Nimitz Freeway going right through West Oakland. We thought that was good at the time because everything was going good for us. You know, we was getting better things. We were getting homes. People were moving up. So they said redevelopment. Okay, we know all this stuff is old down here, so it's redevelopment. So that must be going to be bigger and better. We didn't know the game was, no, man, that's just a front for getting us out of there. So at the time, uh, and then you got blacks on the redevelopment board and stuff like that. The picture didn't look nothing like bad. At the moment, yeah, in time, you know what I'm saying, right? It was just a a trick. We were yeah. being tricked, yeah, and uh, and we see what the results is. You can still go down to West Oakland now and see the remnants of that still. Nothing never came good of that. Yeah, well, one of the things I'm wondering about is, in I've seen some of the interviews you've done with other folks who grew up in West Oakland in the 40s and 50s, and people have such happy memories. People always talk about the community running around, playing at the playgrounds, all this good stuff. But the media portrayal at the time was like, oh, it's the most dangerous place, all this. So where do you think that comes from? Personally, my own point of view would be, that's just, uh, I call it the slave system. Mm. It's just the nature of the slave system. It's always been that way. I tell people that today now. When they talk about how bad Oakland is and stuff. When I was, I, West Oakland was, the, the image always was bad. In uh, the blacks incorporate that themselves. And that's kind of a metaphor for how we're done all over. It's not just Oakland. It's anywhere there's a group of black people. That's the image that's put on it. That's why it's always been, even from the slavery time, a group of black people is bad. It just because you're together. Me and my partners, we were never bad, but they looked at us like we were bad because we was a group of black 
men, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's still like that today. That is the slave system. It has nothing to do with the reality of what you are. West Oakland is part of what I'm doing. The West Oakland stories is all about fighting that image. That's my life. I've been fighting that image all my life. I was going to say, I know that you were fighting that image not only by trying to get black people hired at you know, good jobs, but also through the media. How did you go from being an engineer and this high-level guy at Kaiser to running a TV show and run, doing television production? What was that transition like? As I was doing the advisory board, uh, teaching and overseeing, Kaiser people came to me and asked me to go over and talk to Channel 7 in San Francisco, the head man. I don't remember his name or nothing. They had told him what I was doing. And now, looking back on it, I understand probably how it developed. This is the height of uh, the riots and all this stuff coming over, not to Oakland, but to the country. So they must have been thinking like that. And uh, I told them what I was doing. I was in the Afro-American Association, which was a community group. I'm already doing community work. And they talked about a TV show. And that's how I got Black Dignity. I was a producer of the show. Naturally, hand ready-made Don Morton, I just took it to him and told him what I got. And in a nutshell, he was the moderator, a perfect person. Boy, we already had a radio show, radio show. And we started the uh, the television show for two years, 1968 to 1970. And what was on Black Dignity? Black Dignity was a, a talk show. And all we did was invite guests to come over. And the motto was, uh, was this to the public. Come to our show and don't listen to the media description of what black people are doing. Because this is at the same time the Black Panthers just starting. They're just coming out. So we say come to our show and call in and get the real deal, get get the, get our view of the thing, which fit me perfectly, you know what I'm saying? And uh, that's what we did. And we'd have a guest to discuss things, and then people could call in, which I was the one in the boot taking the calls first, clearing them whether I want them in or not, then push them over to Don Warden, and we go out on air. That's the way it was set up. How did people respond? Oh, well, everybody was responding to it. I mean, because uh, it's like, I don't even know. It might have been the first black talk show, period, at that time. And uh, we were on every Sunday for an hour. Reading through your life story is amazing because of how many different kinds of things you've accomplished and all the different kinds of careers and jobs that you've held. Like, for example, in addition to the engineering and the TV production, you had a nightclub. Tell me about what made you want to start a nightclub. What was it called? What was the scene like? I'm curious about that because I like to go out. I like to go dancing. And when I saw that you had a nightclub, I was like, I got I to gotta ask about this. What was that all about? Okay, the nightclub. It's funny, man. We talking like this on the real side. 
the real estate man comes in talking to my brother about a piece of real estate. And uh, he's not interested. He comes across over to my office and tell me about it. I say, well, I go out and look at it. It's in East Oakland. I go out and look at it. It's uh, on Foothill. It's a club, a private Italian club that's just sitting there. And it was like 36 in Foothill or something like 35th, that? 35th, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 35 something in Foothill Boulevard. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just a building that's uh, just sitting there. They don't, I mean, it's a black area now. So the Italians ain't using it no more, okay? I walk into the place, I like it just like that. Now, one of the reasons I like it is because, okay, now, I'm, I'm, I'm about, uh, that was 70, 72, I think it was. So I'm about 30 years old, about. I'm kind of, I'm in the street all my life, me and my buddies, you know. I'm feeling, I'm getting a little old for that, you know, kind of like that. And... This was like fitting my lifestyle. I can still be out there without being out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the way I felt about it. The club had, it was three levels. The lounge, the showroom, and upstairs. It was perfect, but it was old. And I saw that, I just, I told him, I I'll take it. I'll buy it. That's how I got it. And it was based on do you have any idea what you paid for it? Do you remember? What I paid for it? Yeah. I know exactly what I paid for it. I paid $40,000 for it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. But the reason why I did it is for me and my partners. That's what, we ran it. When I set it up, it, my, my, Bob was the manager. Otis was the inventory man. Guys was security. I mean, I just... It was just made for us. We all knew everybody over Oakland, and and it was just and we could still do what we've been doing all the time, hanging out. But everybody just come to us now. And if someone walks in on a you know Friday night or Saturday night, what are they gonna see when they walk in? What was the vibe there? When they walk in, well, let me back up. It was just an old club. I put damn near hundreds more thousand dollars in it to. I mean, I made it fabulous. I got pictures of it. That's what I did to it. That's that's what I like doing. I like creating all that kind of stuff. And so once I uh, re refurbished it, you walk in it. On the outside, it's kind of plain. I repainted it, but it's still kind of plain. I got a big marquee. But when you walk in it, it ain't nothing like it in Oakland. And it's the biggest black club in Oakland. As a matter of fact, in the Bay Area at that time. And I got, you know, it holds about 400 people. I got waitresses. I dress them. I, the bartenders got bow ties. The waitresses got long dresses. I mean, I do my thing, you know. So I love doing that. It's classy, huh? Yeah, real classy. The 1970s were a busy time for Ed Howard. In addition to running the nightclub, he ran a consulting firm for black businesses, and he also made a documentary to promote the career of an up-and-coming politician named Ron Dellums. 
You might have heard of him. He uh, ended up representing the East Bay in Congress for decades, mentoring Barbara Lee and uh, even serving as Oakland's mayor near the end of his life. Anyway, as the 1970s wore on, the optimism and revolutionary spirit of the 60s, it disintegrated. Heroin flooded into the streets of Oakland, creating a storm of violence and desperation. The neighborhood around the nightclub got more dangerous, and instead of trying to help things, the cops harassed Ed and aggressively ticketed his clientele. The days of hosting national talent like B.B. King and Tina Turner at the corner of 36th and Foothill were over. So after a 10-year run, Ed closed the club, and he did something he'd never done before. He left the East Bay. Now that he was middle-aged, Ed decided he needed a change of scenery, so he moved down to San Diego, where he lived and ran a business for pretty much all the 80s and 90s. But sometime around the turn of the millennium, Ed felt an itch to come home, to his real home, Oakland. Did it feel good to be back? Oh, man. What a relief. Actually... My whole life has been, I'm never one to feel really bad. Everything was good to me. I survived. Uh, I'm back home. I'm 84 years old. And, man, I just feel so good about my life. I've always been a family. Although I'm a, I say street and stuff, I've always been a family man. I've always had everything. So when you got back to Oakland, at what point did you decide you were going to devote your time to capturing the history of West Oakland and interviewing people, and, and what made you want to focus on that? Again, like everything, it comes to me from just being who I am. Uh, when I got back to Oakland, uh, people know me. I called it, in my opinion, Oakland is not bad. That was the purpose of the film, is to show the world Oakland is not bad. Because everybody thinks in the world, they think Oakland is bad. Black Oakland, I mean. So that was my whole point of doing the film. And that is the purpose of the film to this day. On it's morphed into Oakland is not bad to West Oakland stories, positive feeling movement. And that's what I'm... And as you just said earlier, when you look at the write-ups of saying how people are so positive about Oakland, that's what I did. I, all you do is keep saying something enough, people get it. That's all I'm doing. I'm just saying Oakland is cool. Oakland is cool. Mm. Oakland is all right. If you do it long and enough, you get it. And I know it's, well, let me give you this. The biggest example I see of that being true is Barbecue Becky. You familiar with Barbecue Becky? I think everyone knows about Barbecue Becky. Okay, I'm all part of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they put me on national TV when I was yeah. down at the lake. But my point is... And uh, what were you saying about that? I'm saying that how the reaction to her. Mm. Oakland didn't burn down on her. Oakland flipped it. We made it a positive thing for black people. And what came out of it, we got black people down there doing business positive things, that's what Black Oakland does. It's like they didn't burn. We just made it 
be obvious of what was happening and turn it into a positive thing. Yeah. That's the same principle of West Oakland Stories positive feeling movement. I mean, I just have a lot of respect for that approach. And at the same time, I wonder, how do you deal with the things that are negative? When you see things out there, like, you know, when there's violence, when there's, you know, poverty in the streets, like, um, how does your positivity approach fit into that reality of the things that are happening out there that are tragic and sad? Uh, just what I'm telling you already. I understand that uh, you have to have a foundation. Everybody talks about what you're saying. Things are bad. It's not good. That doesn't do anything about anything. You just talk about it. Mm. You just say what it is. Everybody say what things are. I'm on the opposite side. You have to always do something. To change something, you gotta you to physically do something. People can talk, 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 but nothing changes. So my philosophy with the West Oakland stories, positive feeling movement is that once you get a positive thought into yourself, that is the basis for everything else to make a change. Because then you start to do something once you become positive. So it ain't about saying what's bad. It's about you just feeling good about yourself that in turn makes you be positive like I am. I just, it's just, you understand what I'm saying? It's just, you can't do nothing unless you become positive first. Well, and I think that your life is a perfect example of that because I can tell you've always had a positive attitude and look at all the things that you've accomplished, you know, over the decades. So I think that's, a good, uh, you know, exhibit A for how you've put your own philosophy into practice throughout your many decades of uh, being on this planet. Right. Yeah. I agree. That's it... what I do. I just, uh, I just know, I tell people, all my kids, everybody, I always, hey man, you have to, you have to do something to make a change. You can't just say what the problem is. That doesn't get you anywhere. You physically start to work yourself into something. And once you start doing something yourself, it affects everything else in the same way. I think, I think that's a good place to end it because I think that you, uh, I think that you've got a really important message that people need to hear. And I'm uh, you know, honored that you came over here to talk to me today. And it was just a pleasure to hear your memories. And I hope that hearing about your life will you know, inspire people to go down a similar path. So thank you. Well, Liam, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I like the way you've done this interview. I wanted to get out there. And the main thing is, again, my positive approach to Black Oakland. I believe Black Oakland is a leader. We've been leaders I mean, when you talk about the sports and all the Bill Russell and the Frank Rollins, those were our attitudes made us leaders. I know that. If we were always the guys I ran, those guys was always positive guys. Uh, I've always been around the street guys I was around. They were always positive in the way. When I say positive, they would fight or do stuff like that, but. 
the attitude was always, they didn't give in to the system at all. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. First of all, I want to give a shout out to everyone who's been coming on my boat tours this summer. Uh, the tours are currently sold out through the end of July, but I'll be adding more dates for August and September soon. So sign up for my newsletter to find out about uh, when those tickets go up. I'm also hoping to do some live events in places like Alameda and Berkeley in the coming months. So stay tuned for details about those. You can find a link to my newsletter at eastbayyesterday.com. And you can also find a link to Ed Howard's project, the West Oakland Stories Positive Feelings Movement. Ed is currently raising funds for that project. So if you can, please make a donation. And uh, as always, I'm also looking for donations to keep East Bay Yesterday afloat. Thank you so much to everyone who's already supporting this program through my Patreon. Uh, I, I really, truly couldn't do this without you. Uh, also, big props to everyone who's been spreading the word about East Bay Yesterday. Uh, tweet about it. Post it on your IG stories. Tell your grandma. Blast it out your car windows. Play it so loud that your neighbors can hear. Uh, whatever you can do to let more people know about this show, I'd really appreciate. Uh, the music for this episode came from Justin Lee. Thanks again for listening. Go Warriors. <laughs>